you're between the ages of four and eight, you're excused to Kids Club. Friends, we serve a God of hope. A God of hope. A living hope. What that means to us as a church is if you've shown up here this morning and you are neck deep in sin, Jesus overcame. We sing that as a proclamation of the reality that Jesus defeated Satan. He defeated the evil one. He overcame sin and death on our behalfs. He overcame. And we serve a living God. So if it's sin that's creeping up, it's boiling you to death, Jesus overcame. You have been freed. If you're in a relationship that seems utterly hopeless right now at any level. We serve a God of hope. Jesus is a redeemer. And he makes all things new. We're walking through the book of 1 Peter, walking through a series that we've entitled Living in Hope. And I think Peter writes to a lot of these same thoughts, a lot of these same issues. Now, when Peter writes this letter of 1 Peter and ultimately 2 Peter, he's writing to these people in, in Upper Asia and letting them know, as you're living out your faith, as you're walking in a land that is not yours, this is not your home, we serve a God of hope. That Jesus is alive. That for all relative terms, hopelessness shouldn't exist in Christians because of Jesus. And so he writes to them, he pins this letter, and we keep coming back to these essential truths that when Peter writes it, he calls them the elect exiles. We keep coming back to it because it's essential to why he wrote the letter, and it's essential to why we need to hear it. Because these people he writes to are being rejected by the world and simultaneously being accepted by Jesus, and they are exiles. This world was not their home. You may have picked up, I say that every week. I really want you to get that. This world is not your home. In fact, say it with me. This world is not my home. It's not your home. There is in fact something far greater, something far better. This is a temporary place we dwell. And as Christians, the more we lean into that, the more hope becomes a reality for us. Because we don't stake every single thing and everything that happens here. This world is not our home. And as believers in Jesus Christ, our citizenship is not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. Therefore, our identity and our value are not found here. I say that to you every week. I want you to get that. The truths in this book I want to drill home for you. It's this world is not your home. And you belong to Jesus. And I want you to get that. And in fact, I'm going to play with you again. I want you to repeat it with me. I belong to Jesus. Let's try that one more time. 
I belong to Jesus. I feel like a high school Spanish teacher. Yo soy, I don't know Spanish. This world is not our home. We belong to Jesus. And these are these core truths in 1 Peter that instruct us. Because as we live in 2016, there are many of us here who could build our entire hope on a political system. Or on an economic system. Or on a relational system. Or in any grid, you want to find your value, your worth, or your hope. And guys, it's all futile outside of Jesus Christ. Dare I step into it further? It will all burn in eternity. It will not matter one iota. And someday, literally a trillion years from now, we'll be sitting on a shore eating fish with Jesus, glorying and not remembering any of it. Peter calls us to this idea of living hope. That we would literally live within this sphere of hope where we understand that Jesus is alive, he's active, and he's moving. See, we can buy into this reality that Jesus is only alive in like South America, maybe Africa, maybe India, possibly China. I mean, it's awesome we're sending a missions team, but don't forget God's alive and moving here. I love when Kip prayed for us and said, we're all missionaries. And boy, there's no truer sentiment to the New Testament. That in the New Testament, there's one kind of believers. Some of us stay here and tell people. Other people go places and tell people. Same people. And and so we're called to be these people who live out and proclaim this hope that we have. I've had the sweet opportunity since running, knowing we're going to Rwanda, to meet some Rwandans. So I've started meeting with this guy named Alex. Sit down with Alex and start talking to him um, and start spending some time with him building a relationship. Alex, what can you tell me about Rwanda? We build this relationship. It's interesting as we start talking that Alex declares himself to be a believer. But the more we press into his life, the more Alex has been taught and believes and falls into it wholeheartedly that right practice equals acceptance to God. Uh, Pastor Ben, if I go to church, God will accept me. Really? That's kind of a low standard. Oh, Pastor Ben, if I can do this, this, and this, then God will accept me. Alex, that's pretty low, buddy. That's not, in fact, that's not at all what the New Testament decries to us. It, It decries that we have this great hope in Jesus that says we can't be good enough. Therefore, it's almost futile to try that we rest in the reality of what Jesus Christ did at the cross. He is our hope. So I tell my friend Alex, man, I'm excited about going to Rwanda, but what kind of person would I be if I said I cared about Rwandans and I don't care about the Rwandan who lives two miles away from me? And that's just as true for me as it is for us. God has placed within us neighbors, co-workers, aunts, uncles, cousins, parents who don't know Jesus and desperately need to be find this living hope accessible. Because the more we're surrounded by people who try to make this world their home, and they find it lacking, the more they're going to have to hear about Jesus. He's our only hope. He's absolutely 
our only hope. So Peter writes this to us, calling Jesus our living hope. And as he walks through this first chapter, putting out our identity, giving us, as we've said, to make me look smart, indicatives, things that declare truth about us. As he's finishing this first chapter, he's put four imperatives that flow out of our indicatives. This is true about you, therefore do this. And this is what he writes. It says in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. And how crucial it is for us to get that the first imperative he puts out there is set your hope fully on Jesus. It's not about doing right. It's not about being the greatest moral being. It's not about winning the moral Olympics. It's about putting your hope so fully on Jesus that we accept the grace that's offered to us at the cross and we live by it. Set your hope fully on him. And in verse 15, he takes it another step and he calls us, be holy. Literally, be set apart. Be holy as I am holy, reminding us that we belong to the Father. And because we belong to the Father, we're called to reflect his image. And so we're conformed to his image. And so we're called to look like him, reflect him, be like him. And that comes back to our neighbor, doesn't it? Because if our neighbor, coworker, aunt, uncle, cousin wants to know what Jesus looks like, they want to experience Jesus, it ought to be from us. It ought to be our lives that testify to who he is and the hope that we have. He calls us to make our lives a reflection of his holiness And in verse 17, he makes that holiness practical, calling us to conduct ourselves with fear. As we walk through that last week, it's the reality that we would respect the words of our Father, that we'd hear what our Father in heaven says, we'd take his word seriously, we'd respect him enough to honor his word, that we'd take sin seriously and live according to his word. And then this final exhortation out of our identity of the chosen ones, this is what Peter writes in verse 22. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience in the truth. Having purified your souls by your obedience in the truth. There's a comma here. This is just a clause. But we do have to camp out and tell you that if this is your first Sunday at Calvary, if you're visiting us, if you haven't been around for a while, this is not telling you do good, be good, do right things, and Jesus will accept you. That's not at all what it says. That'd be a gross misinterpretation because this text is given in the context of the fact that Jesus is our only hope. We can't be good enough. Jesus was good enough. He alone was good enough. What this text does for us, though is put a path of obedience before us. And I love what Peter does here, because this is the second time, having declared what's true about us, the indicatives, that he comes to an imperative and assumes you're doing it. He gives you the benefit of the doubt, having purified your souls by obedience and the truth. There's this expectation that having heard the word of God, Having acknowledged him as father, of course you're following him. 
And it's leading your life to a greater purity. The psalmist gives this instruction in Psalm 119. It's one of the first passages I used to start with discipling college guys with. Say, hey, let's start with Psalm 119. We're going to memorize it. See, some of you laugh because you've read Psalm 19. You start with a new believer, they're like, yeah, let's memorize Psalm 119. And then they realize it's like the seven-pager. Yeah, we're not going for all of it. Let's go for one. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And the psalmist tells us how. You want to pursue purity? And by the way, that's a word for all of us. We pin this word on teenagers. This is a word for all of us. At every age level, whether you're 12, 8, 87, 94, 60, 50, pick an age, preferably yours, and apply it to your life. How do you pursue purity? By reading God's word and obeying it. And God will purify your life. And Peter assumes that. He assumes that of us as believers, that we're in God's word, we're studying it, and God is working on us. He's purifying us so that we're becoming a more morally relevant people. In fact, my senior pastor in Memphis had a, a triad he loved to talk about. One of them was moral legitimacy. That if you actually want to engage your neighbor, co-workers, friends, peers, cousins, aunts, uncles, you have to be morally legitimate in order to testify to who Jesus is. Because if your life is morally out of whack, somebody's just going to look at you and say, wait, what, really? Now, I'm not telling you you've got to be perfect. There is not one of us here who is. And we need to hear that more often. Not perfect. Not perfect. I literally pointed at everyone. So if you're here and you feel like I'm the only one who's not nailing it, I'm alone here, I'm in a room full of perfect people, stop. It's, it's, it's all of us. Every last one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus died on the cross for us. We need to pursue moral legitimacy because it validates our message and it allows people to see Christ living out in us, moving through us, and becomes a very picture of hope that we want others to see. Now, while moral legitimacy is important, my friend Cole would also say that relational integrity exists. And this is a huge text for us to consider. Because Christians tend to fall into one of two camps when we come to this text. We love moral legitimacy and we stink at relational integrity. Or we love relational integrity and we stink at moral legitimacy. Now, if that was like a lot of big dollar words, because frankly I look most of them up in the dictionary... What that means to us is we can fall into a camp where we think it's just about following the rules and we isolate ourselves. In fact, throughout history, Christians have done that. 
Um, I just, I need to isolate myself, get myself away from everyone. They're all going to taint me. Don't want to be around those people. Got to pursue all, following all the rules. Let's just get a group of people around me who follow all the rules and we'll be safe. And guys, that's not the gospel. But you know, the other camp exists too. Let's just all be together and excuse our sin. Let's all make ourselves feel better. In fact, I used to, working with college kids, would tell them that's one of the biggest issues with accountability groups is we become sin management groups. Oh, you did that? I did that too. Man, we're both blowing it. High five. Like, what? Really? That's how we handle sin? With a high five? And if that's you, friends, I walked there for like a decade. So it's all of us. So what Peter writes here is this handshake relationship where we're both pursuing moral legitimacy and relational integrity. Because how he takes this passage, having purified your souls by your obedience for the truth, for a sincere brotherly love. Watch what he does here. This is his fourth exhortation to you, his command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And what he does here in the Bible is put it really clearly before you. Love one another. Unless you try to fake that, he includes some other words. Earnestly. Sincerely. We don't just pat each other in the back. Oh, hey, how are you doing? Good, good, good. See you later. But we love one another with a sincerity that's real. It comes from our hearts as we pursue one another relationally. And friends, this is the church. This is what the picture of the church in the New Testament looks like. Not a large room gathering where we sit and listen to a a stick figure who thinks he's smarter than you talk. See, that's not the church. The church is a group of people who are relationally interconnected with one another, who are leading lives, trying desperately to point to Jesus so that we can mutually encourage one another. That's the church in the New Testament. Guys, this is why we try to push you into community with one another. Because as you could sit here for a decade, two decades, three decades... Sit in your happy little pew by yourself, never be known. By the way, silently being offended that the church doesn't care about you. Silently being offended that the church doesn't show up at the hospital when you go, even though you didn't tell anyone. Had a phone call in Memphis from a woman who expressed just that. Angry that we didn't come to visit. Well, did you tell anyone? No. Was God supposed to reveal that to me in my quiet time? I mean, how do we find these things out? And the answer is we live in community with one another. We let people into our lives. Such that when you're struggling at work, there need to be people in your life who know. Why? Because they'll carry your burdens. Six times in the New Testament does it say carry one another's burdens. So that when you're struggling with sin... It's not just you. It's not you on an island. It's not you waging war by yourself. You're going to get murdered that way. Remember, the lion always takes down the loner. 
Now, Anna Kate will be cheering for you. because She loves the gazelle. We told that story a couple weeks ago. But you get murdered pursuing sin, fighting sin by yourself. You need to have some people in your life and go, man, I struggled with that. Not high five. But let's get on our knees and pray through this. Let me tell you how I fought through this. Let me tell you what it looked like to have people involved in my life. How we wandered into this church. We are called to love one another like brothers. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.5 that you were adopted as sons through Jesus. God has a family. And that when you accept Jesus Christ, when you believe in him, you call on to his name and to salvation, you are adopted by him into the family of God. You're adopted by him into the family of God. It says in Romans 8 that we have received the spirit of adoption. We've been adopted by God. And when we are adopted by the Father, we didn't just inherit a father, we inherited a family. Because we were not just adopted into a father, we were adopted into a family with a father. So we have literal brothers and sisters. The New Testament defines this for you. That we are literally to treat one another, not like family metaphorically, but as family literally. And some of you are going to walk into that in life. I've known seasons where people want to pursue Jesus. Their family cuts them off. And so they have a family called the church that comes alongside of them. And they end up with spiritual parents and spiritual aunts and uncles and spiritual brothers and sisters. And friends, that's what we have to be to one another. And we've got people in our midst whose whole families, like mine, live far away So when it comes to me and my family, and I know I'm not the only one, there's probably a dozen of us whose family lives far, far away, we need you guys to step in and be family to us. And by the way, that's not a call to love the killer lanes. Don't. Love other people. Worry about each other. It'll make my life easier. But step in and be family to one another. That as you approach holidays, look around and think, well, I don't know if they have anywhere to go. We should open up our table. Well, we don't ever open up our Easter table. That's for our family. Yes! And we're family. That's what we do for one another. Not metaphorically, but literally love one another with a pure heart. Open a passage now you're going to roll your eyes at. I need you to lean in and listen and not roll your eyes. 1 Corinthians 13, which, by the way, is read at most weddings. I've said it at my fair share. But as we open this passage, recognize that we roll our eyes at it and we never apply it. And that's exceedingly problematic. Recognize immediately that this passage at no point is talking to married people. This passage is talking about how believers ought to function together. Now, it ought to be true about me and Pam, but it ought to be equally as true with me and Seth and me and Dulcie and me and Eric and me and you. This is how believers ought to function together, and this is what Paul writes, defining love. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Lean into that. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if you stand up on a high stool and spout at people, declare truth, you stand on your soapbox and you bark at people to get in line, you are a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If you have not love. If I have prophetic powers, read into that prophecy according to our interpretation of it is the ability to, to read the Bible, to take God's truth and apply it to one's life. If I have prophetic powers, I understand the Bible, I understand truth, I understand all mysteries and knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, you could be the most colossal spiritual giant in the room. You could know the Bible, theology, God, his will. You could believe in him more than anyone else ever has. And yet if you have not love, it is nothing worthless. If I gave away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, if you're the most generous, most self-sacrificial person here, if you think that being in the body, being in the church, is serving, showing up at every event, not having to be acknowledged, going through all the motions, you give yourself away, whether you're physically or financially, but have not love, you gain nothing. Nada. Zip, zero, nil. If I knew more languages, I'd go further. What Paul puts before us is you could have all the talent in the world, all the gifts in the world, but if you do not love your neighbor, you do not love your fellow believer, it is all pointless and worthless. You could follow all the rules, you could be moral, but if you do not have love, it is worthless. And this is what Jesus says in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If the world is supposed to know that you not only know Jesus, but that you follow him, Jesus testifies to us in the book of John that the way the world will know that is not your cheesy Christian t-shirt. It says nothing about your jewelry. It says nothing about your modesty. It says nothing about a bumper sticker you put on the back of your car. By the way, some of you need to take them off. You drive terribly. <laughs> it says if you love one another, that that's the testimony the world will look at. Francis Chafer wrote about this and said, but by this passage... God gives the believers the right to look at your life and to judge whether or not you know Jesus by how you treat other people. And that's rough. It was recently written that the head of a major Fortune 500 company goes to restaurants ahead of time before he's going to meet somebody for an interview and asks the waiter and or waitress, hey, when you come, I'm going to meet with somebody here. When they come, I want you to treat them very rudely. And I want you to mess up their order. Because I want to see how this guy's going to react. Interesting that a Fortune 500 company owner has this foresight. 
says, because when you come and we're interviewing you and you lose it on this stranger, boy, that says so much about your integrity. It's, he said, I use that as my barometer as whether or not I want to hire you. That's more important to me than how the rest of the interview goes. I want to know how you'll treat people. Jesus says the same thing. By this, all people will know that you are mine, that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Paul clarifies for us what that looks like because it's not an emotion, it's not a feeling, it's a commitment. Always has been, always will be according to the Bible. So let's continue to lean into 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and love is kind. Now if you've ever really walked through this passage, let's lean into it further. If the Bible says to us that love is patient, you have to then interpolate, you're going to require patience. Now if you're asked to show patience, if it's assumed this is going to be a quality you're going to need, then the reality is there that the people around you are going to irritate you. That they're going to be annoying. That's why it calls you to be patient. For if we were, none of us were called to be irritating or annoying to one another, then it wouldn't call us to this, would it? But love is actually putting up with one another. It may very well be that God fills your life with irritating and annoying people. And by the way, you may be one. For the spiritual, thanks Shane, for the spiritual edification of the body. That he might use us to grow each other up in Christ. That when you show up and you irritate the tar out of me, it's happened. Not by any of you. They're sick today. That's a joke, by the way. Because <laughs> now you're going to think about who's sick. It's an opportunity for me to express love, not irritation, not frustration. Guys, we all fall short. We all fall short, and we got to expect that. This is a room of probably 200 people today. You are not going to love everyone here on paper. And that's awesome. We're an opportunity for each other to grow up in Christ by showing each other patience and kindness, by not envying or boasting, by not being arrogant or rude. By not insisting on its own way, and we could preach that for a year. Because the church is full of selfishness. And let me tell you how I know that. Me. Me. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about when I engage my own heart, my own life, when I pray through my struggles. What I find over and over and over again is me, 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 and me. Now, you may be way better off than me. I'm confident some of you are. But when I pray through my life, that's what I see. And I got a sneaking suspicion I'm not alone. What the Bible calls us to do is do not cyst on our own way, do not be irritable or resentful. Do not rejoice in wrongdoing. Rejoice in the truth. And again, lean into every single one of those words, and you'd find the reality that you're going to be surrounded with people who irritate you, frustrate you, and fall short of the glory of you. And God may have intended it that way. 
God may very well have intended that way. Eugene Peterson, in one of his books, it's actually, I love Peterson's writings from a pastoral perspective, writes that people walk into the church and they always complain, my church is not perfect, it's broken, it's full of a bunch of hypocrites. Could it be that God designed it to be this way? Could it be that God fills the church with broken and perfect people so that we'll rub on each other and grow each other up in Jesus Christ? And he points in his book to this idolatry of comfort that we have. That we want to surround ourselves with people who make us happy and comfortable and who agree with us. And none of that leads us to Jesus. Paul calls us here and gives us pictures of what love actually looks like. It's not an emotion. It's a set of actions where we pursue one another. Referred to it earlier in the New Testament, there are over 100 one another's expressed in 94 different verses. I'll show you a little graphic of some of them. There are 59 major ones. This is, I believe, all of them, of how Christians are supposed to act with each other. Peter puts this out there. Paul puts this out there. It shows up in every New Testament book that we're supposed to greet with one another, agree with one another, be patient with one another, comfort one another, serve one another, submit to one another, admonish one another, sing to one another. Don't hit me up for that one. <laughs> Melinda gets to hear me every Sunday, and she, she just treasures that in her heart. Uh, fellowship with one another, be kind to one another, do not grumble, forgive one another, confess your sins to one another. And friends, as you lean into the Bible, you would quickly find these aren't suggestions. It's not like, hey, if you feel like it, Hey, if they're close to you, if they're in your inner circle, that this is how believers should respond to one another. Six times does it say, greet one another. Four of those times does it say, with a holy kiss. I'm not telling us we should kiss one another. The culturally appropriate metaphor in that is to give each other a high five. But to not acknowledge one another is anti-biblical. That when we come into a room and we walk in and sit quietly and never acknowledge anyone on our left or our right, we miss it. It's part of the reason why we have coffee and serve cookies and all sorts of delicious treats. So that on your way there, you would stand up. You'd look around and you'd high-five some people. You'd get to know them. You'd mix in your lives with their lives. It is good for us. And it's following Jesus. Howard Snyder wrote a book called The Problem of Wineskins. This is what he writes. By the way, he wrote this in 1979, still true. The church today is suffering a fellowship crisis. In a world of big and personal institutions, the church often looks like just another big and personal institution. May it never be said of us. One seldom finds within the institutionalized church today that winsome intimacy among people where masks are dropped, honesty prevails, and that a sense of communication and community beyond the human abounds, where there is literally the fellowship of and in the Holy Spirit. Friends, that's a church we're called to pursue. That's the picture of the church we're called to pursue. In Snyder's words, that we come into a gathering together and we drop our masks. That we wouldn't have to act like we've got our lives together. Because we don't. 
where we wouldn't have to hide and lie because honesty prevails. That this would be the one place in your life when somebody says, how, how are you doing? And you could say, really cruddy and expect somebody to listen to you. That this ought to be the place where a sense of communication and community beyond the human, in Snyder's words, we don't just look at each other from a moralistic way, we don't look at each other from a socialistic way, from a how can I benefit from you way, but where we express the Holy Spirit to one another. Paul writes, love one another earnestly and from a pure heart. A couple weeks ago, we had a marriage conference here. Two nights before the marriage conference, I got a Facebook message. We did a little bit of Facebook marketing, trying to engage some other people. Got a message from a gal who writes to me, um, writes to the church. It wasn't to me personally. Um, Dear Calvary, um, I'm a lesbian, and I was wondering if me and my partner would be welcome to your event. We are interested in strengthening our marriage. I'm interested to know what you'll say. Look at it, pray over it, and I write her back. Dear, and I don't remember her name was, um, I, in fairness to you, I feel like you should know that Calvary as a church in, embraces a traditional marriage position. But if we can't love you, we have no business being a church. If you can't walk into our midst and be loved here, we have absolutely no business representing Jesus Christ. So you are welcome. If you come, I'd love to meet you and I'd love to introduce you to some people because we would welcome you here. See, we don't just have a moral claim. We have a relational requirement that we show people Jesus Christ. Friends, none of us are nailing it. None of us. So we can't expect anyone coming off the street to be nailing it either. We do, however, need to love them. Regardless of the background or situations they're coming from, we need to love them. Peter says, because we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, and we'll finish there. God is at work. He's at work conforming our lives to his image. Because he died on the cross and paid for our sins, because he rose again, we have a living hope. And that living hope calls us not to be comfortable, not to be crusty or stagnant, but to pursue moral legitimacy and to pursue relational integrity. That we'd become a people who are increasingly more and more like Jesus in our reflection and more and more like Jesus in our relationships. That we love people really well. Let me pray for us. Father, as we look at this text, I know, Father, I fall short. There's a way in here, Father, where I think I could be so tempted to think I don't measure up and I'm not the only one. I'm so thankful, God, that as we look at these, there's so many parts of this text that just assume I'm obeying. It's a picture of hope for me. Father, I pray that you would call us as a people to a pursuit of holiness, to a pursuit of purity, 
not out of a moralistic duty, not out of a place where we try to earn favor with you, but from a place where we want to be a better reflection of you to the world around us. Father, I want to pray over us as a church that you'd make us better lovers of people. Father, that we would love one another really well, that we'd greet one another, we'd confess sin to one another, that we wouldn't have to act like we've got our lives together, but we'd love each other so well because it's a reflection of your gospel. God, we have great hope because of your son. You're not done working in and through any of us. God, we love you. And we're so thankful for Jesus who loved people so well. Help us to love better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.